feature with Bible study and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com that's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study all one word you go there to that webpage and there's a button that you can toggle and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail and we'd love to hear from you could be just saying hi or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. Good to be here. Woo-hoo! Yeah. Glad you're here. <coughs> going to take some time to pray, and uh, see what God will do in our midst tonight. I'm excited about that part. Father, thanks for just uh, your presence here. We gather in the name of Jesus, and here you are in our midst. We welcome you. We ask that you'd have your way. We pray, God, for the moving of your Holy Spirit in us and among us and through us. Ask you, God, that we would be open. What do you want to say? What do you want to do? How do you want to change us? How do you want to challenge us? And I pray that we would lay down pride, we'd lay down uh, whatever it is that stands in the way, the hindrances that so often pop up to keep us from receiving all that you have for us. The fears, just lay them down. The defenses, we lay them down. We ask you, God, that you'd have your way. Have your way. We give you this time. Be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Second Samuel. Second Samuel. Anybody remember what I talked on yesterday? Yes. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't give up. Huh? Don't give up. I didn't. I thought you'd get it. So there you go. I <laughs> Suffer your hands to hang down. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't give up, man. Get weary. There it is. Thank you, Jeannie. Yeah. She's been repeating it to herself for 20, 24 solid hours. Cold or hot tea is better than lukewarm. Yes. Yeah, it's the cold or hot, right? Oh, we got that. That'll be a sloth. <laughs> Matthew, when do you leave, huh? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Oh my God. So you're going to be gone, right? Yeah. For like a year or more. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks for hanging out with us and going through all this stuff with us and just being here. So we're just really thankful for you and uh, blessing on you. Yeah, yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, I just want to make sure. Make sure you say bye to Matthew. Uh, he's heading out. He's going to do a little 10 city tour. Uh, intensity and 10 city, or I don't know, it's not 10 city, but he's going to do a little tour and head back. So, um, yeah, really nice. Really nice. Good to know you. Alright. Me and Matthew went uh, hiking on Friday. Well, there were four of us, but he and I were there. And uh, so, did you get sore from that, or is it okay? Uh, I was okay. I was okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, what about 10 miles? It was a good one. So, that's fun. Alright. Yeah, so 2 Samuel, chapter 12. Second Samuel, chapter 12, and I need a volunteer to read verse 22. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and watched. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. All right. So who's this? David. David. What's the child? Yeah. So this was the the problem uh, that he created through his actions and his passion, his out-of-control passion. And so uh, it led to not only an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, it led to a murder of her husband, and and it led to a child being born. And so what had happened was is that David uh, was confronted, recognized his sin, and if you want to read about how he responded, we actually have a record. Uh, a couple of records of how he responded. One, you can see how he responded to Nathan when Nathan confronted him. And you can see what you would not imagine to be necessarily a king responding. But he was everything a king is supposed to be. And so he responded to Nathan with a humility. He responded to Nathan with a humble heart. And then, if you want to read on, uh, you can even see his conversation with God in Psalm 51. And most of you have read Psalm 51 before, but it was through Psalm 51, I want you to think about that psalm, that David, uh, in assurance of pardon, he lamented his sin, he was willing to bear the responsibility, and he submitted to the will of God. Right, now, all those things sound, okay, well, that's good. Yeah, that's awesome, actually. And, and the reason that that's awesome is because he was willing to give himself into the hands of God. Now, this was a pattern in his life, that he would rather put himself in the hands of God. And, and there were other times in his life where he made that decision. Because fundamentally, he trusted God. Fundamentally, he trusted God more than he trusted his enemy. Fundamentally, he trusted God more than he trusted anything else. He was trusting God. And so for him to submit himself to the will of God was a natural act for him. It was something that was just a part of who he was. And so as he prayed for forgiveness and received a pardon as he lamented his sin 
as he was willing to bear the responsibility for his sin, he submitted himself to the will of God. Now, what do I mean by bearing the responsibility? Well, he was willing to say that he did this. He didn't blame anybody. Because you know, if that Bathsheba hadn't have been bathing on the rooftop, right? He would have never been tempted. And so then he wouldn't have done it. So it's her fault. Or if that stupid Uriah, her husband, would have just gone and been with his wife, like every other red-blooded Israelite would have done, come back from battle, all this would have been avoided. But he wouldn't. And you could have blamed him. You could have blamed any number of people, and yet he understood this was him. This was his doing. It was his fault. It was it was something that he had made a decision for and carried through on, and that was the end of it. That was it. And I have to believe, and I do believe, that God honors that. Look at Adam and Eve. I mean, they were so busy blaming each other for what happened that it, it seems like there wasn't really a lot of honor in that. Did you see what I'm saying? Do you see the contrast? You see a contrast between Adam blaming his wife. He didn't even say his wife. He said, the woman you have, you have given me. So ultimately, whose fault was that? God's fault. Yeah, I've disobeyed you, God, and, and rebelled against your word in my life, your simple word, and it was one thing I couldn't do, and I couldn't even stay from doing that. So, and why? Because of this woman that you gave me. So he blamed God, the woman, and he removed himself at least two spots away from taking personal responsibility for what he had done. David wasn't like that. David just wasn't like that. And, and so he submitted to the will of God. And even in this resignation, I want you to think about it. You read this verse. The resignation that you see here is that he submitted to God's will for his life. And in this matter, what was God's will? What was going to happen? His son was going to die. Yeah, the death of his child. It was a resignation to God. Now, God would give him another. Alright? In fact, God would give him many children. But there was one in particular that God would give him who would be a favored son. And his name was Jadidjah. You know anybody by that name? Yeah. Taco Joe, right. That's a literal translation of Jijitja. It's Taco Joe. You don't know that, but I'm just telling you. And it means, it means beloved of the Lord. And, uh, and certainly, uh, that when Joe, if you ever know his story, you know, when he was a baby, he died. And his mom laid out over him, and he came back to life. But she considered him to be beloved of the Lord. She considered him to be a blessing of the Lord, and he was a favorite son. Just as his son would be, too. 
Now, put the death of an infant in context. I want you to think about this for a second. David was a big-time king. David had a bunch of wives. Not only did he have a bunch of wives, he had a bunch of concubines. So we call that, what do we call that? A harem, okay, because he's an eastern king. I would say the word oriental, but somehow people have associated that with drugs or something. So I'm going to, he was an eastern king. He just means eastern, so. He was a, an eastern king. And so, in, as part of being an eastern king, he had a harem. And as part of that harem, he had certain women that were wives, he had certain women that were concubines, but it was within his rights and privileges that he would have children from either one, either group. Now, I was just watching Robin Hood last night. <laughs> you know, Mel Brooks' Robin Hood? And there's one point where Mel Brooks leans into the camera and is like, it's good to be the king. And that's what he said. Now, this sounds like more like a headache to me, but he had all of these people that were in his household, all these people that were a part of, of his house and a part of, uh, they could be considered among his wives, his concubines, whatever. And so he could have children off of all and any of these. Many, many, many children. And you think back into ancient times, what do you think the mortality rate was for children? A little bit higher than it is now? Maybe. Okay, without hospitals, without um, doctors, they hadn't been wives, but I mean, it was just uh, that the mortality rate, the child mortality rate was likely a little bit higher than it is now. And so, looking at that in context, the death of an infant and I know you're going to hate me for saying this, but the death of an infant in context really shouldn't have been that big of a deal for David. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't a big deal for Bathsheba. I'm not saying it wasn't a big deal for anybody else. I'm just saying he had plenty of children, and he would have more children. And he had plenty of wives, and he had plenty of concubines, and there were plenty of opportunities to have more children. And as it was a more common thing to happen, it would not have been that big of a deal. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying kids dying in childbirth is no big deal. You understand me? I'm not saying that at all. I'm just telling you, in context, historical context, because historical context does matter. It does matter. In historical context, it would not have been that big of a deal. And yet, look at the reaction that David shows here. He shows a deep emotion. I mean, what's he doing? He's praying for this child. He's interceding for this child. He's, he, he's showing the, uh, concern and care above and beyond what would be expected of him for this child. And in this deep emotion that he shows for this child, and it shows us two things about David. One, it shows us, it gives us an indication of his nature. Because even though it's within his rights or privileges or however you want to see that, it gives us an indication of his nature that he was deeply moved by this. An indication of his nature about what his heart was like. 
the pliability, the softness of his heart. It gives us an indication of, of how he saw life. And I know that sounds funny because he was a warrior. And I know that sounds weird because he'd gone out and he had killed. You know, they, they, they sang songs about him killing his ten thousand. And he led people into battle and, and, and he had struck down kings and armies and all the rest of those kind of things. And yet here he was with this child sick pouring his heart out for that child. It tells you something about his heart. It tells you something about who he was. A man after God's own heart. Loving, tender, that's who he was. And you see that in a lot of his writing when he's writing the Psalms, when he's writing the worship and, and the music and he's writing those songs that they would be sung. He's pouring his heart out and you see that in his heart. You see the love and you see the tenderness that was in his heart. It's okay. It's okay to be loving and it's okay to be tender. If you can be pretty much a, a big time badass as David was and still be filled with love and tenderness. And maybe that doesn't compute in certain worlds or that doesn't compute in certain ways that you might want to see things. But David's a great example. He's a great example of a poet who was also a warrior. A great example of someone that could go out and lead his men into battle and yet he's someone that was touched, touched by the people around him, by the Holy Spirit who was open and a soft heart. It also tells us something not only about him and his heart, but it also tells us something about the way that he saw Bathsheba. But even after everything that had happened, it shows us that he had an affection and he continued to have an affection for her. Even at the end of his life, I last week I think I was reading about the end of David's life and one of his sons had risen up and made himself king. I can't remember the guy's name, but he made himself king. It wasn't Solomon. I don't know if it was Epsilon. What? Yeah, that sounds more like it. It happened a couple times. This was toward the end of his life. It wasn't the one where he was driven out of Jerusalem. That was Absalom, I think. This was toward the end of his life, and one of the sons yeah, had uh, had just anointed himself king, and he'd gotten a bunch of people to go with him. And we get the account of David, and Bathsheba came in to ask David, and she wasn't real direct about, like, did you do this? She was just like, here's what's happened. And, and you know, Solomon's supposed to be king. And David, he didn't really respond to it. He just said, okay, well, bring to me so-and-so and so-and-so. And then he just took care of it. And that's what happened. But it was interesting to me that you see that interaction between David and Bathsheba. 
and what she had to say, and then his action toward whatever was going on based on her work. There's an affection. And there's a love there. And so we get to it. What's going on here? And we see that God strikes the child. And kind of interestingly, when David, when David's praying for this child, and when he's interceding for this child, and he's doing everything that he's doing, his servants were surprised at his conduct. Who were his servants? People that lived with him. They were the people that served him. They were the people that did stuff for him in his household. But they were surprised at his conduct. But what was his conduct? Well, he was filled with anguish while the child was sick. What does that mean? Well, he was praying, he was fasting, he was weeping. While the child was alive, he was doing all those things. He was engaged, he was on the floor, the ground, praying for this child, believing for this child, doing anything that he could do to intercede for this child, and he was showing that kind of concern over this child, this newborn. Now remember what I said. In this culture, in historical context, they would not have expected him to do that. And yet there he was. Now, and, and I want to remind you, this is even after God had told him that he was going to take the life of the child. Right? And so not only was this a child... A child, a random child, not a random child, his child that was born of Bathsheba, but he also had a word about this child that God was going to take this child's life. And yet, his actions were to be fasting, weeping, and praying, and, and finding himself on the ground as king, interceding for the child's life. They were surprised and his conduct. Why do you think he did that? Think about it. Why did he do that? He already had a word that the child was going to die. The Yeah. So in other words, and I'm going to want to come back to this in a minute. In other words, in other words, David believed that he could influence God. He believed that. And to me, one of the more destructive teachings that is sometimes taught in the church is just to pray things, well, your will be done. I mean, you don't have an opinion. You don't have a desire. You don't want to see something happen. Then why bother? Why are you praying? You follow me? There has to be something in us that believes that we can influence God. There has to be something in us that believes that we can have some kind of an effect on what's going on around us. Otherwise, why bother? I can't even think of a good reason. Because that would seem like an ultimate waste of time. To just pray for what? Just because? You're supposed to? There needs to be something in us that somehow believes that we can have some kind of say. 
And I'm not saying God ain't going to do what God's going to do. God does whatever He wants. I know that. I'm not deceived. I'm not fooled. I know that God does what He wants. And there's a big difference between going into a situation and telling God what to do and expecting Him to sit and roll over and beg and lay down and heal and jump through a hoop because you told Him to. There's a big difference between that and believing that we can have influence over Him and with Him. There's a huge difference between those two things. Because as soon as you start teaching people, it's like, well, you know, when you pray, it means something. You know, when you pray, you can actually influence how God moves. Things can change when you pray. You start telling people that, you'll start ordering God around like a circus dog. Why? Those aren't the same thing. Those are not the same thing. I want to be a person of influence. I want to be that. Not only with people around me, but I want to be a person of influence with God too. David was a person of influence with God. For all the reasons I've mentioned already. But we're looking at a, a major failure on his part leading to this moment. But he was still a person of influence with God. He's pardoned. He lamented. He bore the responsibility. He resigned himself and submitted to the will of God. He's a person of influence. And so he believed. He believed that he was a person of influence. And I want to tell you something else too. He had a certain assumption. You ready for the assumption? It was the assumption of grace. That God moves in grace. That God operates in grace. That as we pray, and we pray grace over situations. I mean, David, David was alive. Why? Because God moved in grace. David had become king. Why? Because God moves in grace. David was living the life he was living. Why? Because God was moving in grace. He understood that. He knew that. You begin to take a look at where you've come from and where you are right now. God moves in grace. The only way we don't understand that, the only way we don't really enter into the reality of that grace is if we're so arrogant that we believe that we did it. Now, we got a part in it? Sure. But a lot of grace. A lot of grace. So we have to have this, and I believe we need an assumption of grace in our life. I believe that we need to default to grace in our life. I really believe that. Although we serve a God who's shown His grace over and over and over and over again. The Gospel is built on grace. And so if we're going to default to anything, anything, it needs to be grace. It's a shame that some of us that were brought up in certain segments of the church, we were brought up 
by those segments of the church that defaulted to judgment. Because that's not what God is doing. And He's proven that over and over and over again. He proves it so many times over, so many manifold times over and over again. He is not defaulting to judgment. In our lives, in the lives of anybody, even the Old Testament, I mean, Israel lived in a constant transgression of the law. And yet hundreds of years would pass while they were in constant transgression of the law to give them opportunity to change their ways. Because he defaulted to grace, not to judgment. Because that's who he was. That's who he is. And so you see it even through the Old Testament that none were perfect. None. Zero. Zero were perfect. And yet and he, and he defaulted to that grace over and over and over and over again. Hundreds and hundreds of years. Decades would pass. Centuries would pass. And then judgment would come. So what are we going to preach about? The hundreds of years of grace or the moment of judgment? Right? You see, hundreds of years of grace is not defaulting to judgment. It's defaulting to grace. David understood it. David understood it. I've had Christians tell me, it's like, oh, you should live in a, a constant state of repentance. Yeah, I... That's really hard, man. Right? Because what sin am I committing? I don't even know. Alright, uh, and forgive me to this, this, and this, and everything I don't even understand. I, I, what? What? Well, you need to do that. You ever hear this argument? You need to do that just in case what? You get, what? Hit by a... Bus? Car? Yeah. How, what kind of way is that to live? And as it's just turning your, your eyes away from the grace that God has poured out. And so I'm encouraging you, some of you, and I know I've been saying this for years, but allow God to change you in your heart, your mind. It might help you not to beat yourself up so quickly, too. It might. If you begin to live in the grace that He gives. If you default to the grace that God is giving, you may not live so self-critical all the time. So judgmental of yourself. And so God struck the child. David, he was in anguish. He was praying, fasting, weeping, doing all those things. That's what he was doing. And God struck the child, and the child died. So, the servants had been surprised at his conduct. What was his conduct? Weeping, praying, interceding. He was on the ground. He was in anguish. Pray for that child. 
So they see him in this state. They find out, oh, the child's dead. Well, who's going to tell him? Being a messenger was a horrible job back then. It just was. Because if the guy in charge was just irritated or angry or something, guess who he took it out on? <laughs> so you kind of see him over there. You know, trying to figure out who's going to go in there to tell him. Well, the Bible says he saw him, noticed him talking amongst themselves, and so he just plainly asked me, he said, he said, the child's dead. Yeah. And so the account we have is that then he got up, he bathed himself, he anointed himself, he worshipped, and then he ate. That's the account. And so they've been shocked at his behavior beforehand. Now they were really shocked at his behavior now. They have been shocked at the tenderness of his heart, shocked at his anguish, shocked at how he had responded to this child, this deep emotion that he had shown. But then as soon as he found out the child was dead, now in their culture, it was customary that they would mourn. And they would mourn for a long time, days. In fact, they had people, their family would come along <coughs> and mourn. And then there would be other people come along and mourn. And then in the New Testament, you read through some of those there, they even have professional mourners. They would come and mourn with you and your family. Just in case it wasn't loud enough while you were mourning. And so that was a big deal. And so David made a big deal while the child was alive. Praying and anguish, all those things he was doing. As soon as he found out that the child was dead, he picked himself up, bathes, anoints himself, and then worships and eats. They were really shocked at that. That's not how it usually goes. That's not how it works. That's not the custom of the day. That's not how things take place. And yet, that's exactly how it happened. And so the question, and, and this is the question I was asking, is like, can God possibly be influenced? Is it possible to influence God? And the answer to that is, yeah, it is. We have examples in the scripture. So I look at Jonah 3, 4. Jonah 3, 4. He tried to run away from it. Y'all know the story of Jonah. 
He ended up back there, so he's like, all right, all right, all right, I'll do it. Goes into the city. He wanted to see the city destroyed. Goes into the city, starts preaching the word. The people repent, and God didn't destroy the city. He was influenced by their actions. He was influenced by their repentance. He was influenced by their cry and their heart. And they were a bunch of sinners. No, really. They were so sinful, he's ready to destroy the whole city. But what other cities you know, off the top of your head, the guy was ready to destroy because they were so sinful? Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. Right. And we got some examples of how sinful they were. I mean, we got, you know, like the accounts of how sinful they were, how messed up those places were. So Nineveh was one of those places. It was just really messed up to the point that God was going to just destroy them. That's pretty messed up. But those messed up people, listen to me, those messed up people, those sinners, those people that had no hope, all right? God was just going to destroy them. They repented. They repented. God's prayer. They influenced God more than his prophet did. You see, God's prophet was offered the destruction of Nineveh. Jonah, he was all for it. And if he'd have had his way, it would have been done. But these people, these people, and, and this is the part I'm, I'm trying to hammer home here, they were not especially spiritual at all. They were not on the right side of the issues with God. They were messed up. But even those messed up people, through their repentance, taking responsibility, lamenting of sin, and submitting themselves to the will of God, Save their city and save their lives. They influence God. So, what does that tell you about being an influence when it comes to God? What does it tell you? Worth a try. It's always worth a shot, man. Always. And and it, the real the premium isn't really on whether or not you're a favorite. Because Nineveh wasn't. The premium isn't on, oh, yeah, length of service. The premium isn't on depth of service, even. But to me, the premium's on just being honest and open and willing. Open your heart and see what God might do. David, he opened his heart. He opened his heart to see what God might do. And and they asked him too. They were like, well, and then they questioned him. They were confused. Shocked at his behavior. Like, well, you were all 
anguish and praying and crying and on the ground over here. Father was still alive, but as soon as you found out he was dead, he jumped up and took a shower and anointed yourself, worshipped, and then you ate some. I mean, it was like a light switch. So it happened. And this is David's response to them that we're looking at tonight. He said, well, while he was alive, while he was alive, there's still hope. There's still hope. One of my favorite verses out of Ecclesiastes. And, and I have to teach on it right now. For like an hour. It's better to be a live dog. You know the rest of that verse? Than a dead lion. Because while you're alive, there's still Yeah. And so that's what he said. He's like, well... While the child was alive, I fasted, I wept, I prayed. Who can tell if God might be gracious? Right? Who can tell? Because He's gracious all the time. And David knew that. David understood that. David recognized it. David honored it. David noticed it. God's gracious all the time. All the time. So taking note of that is an important part of living the way that we're supposed to live. Is that if we're going to live in, in, in the presence of a God who is full of grace, you need to recognize He's full of grace. How do you recognize He's full of grace? Well, every day. What happened today that shows you that God's just full of grace? What happened today? Just think of something. You want to share something? Something that happened today. God's full of just God's just super graceful. Anybody? I needed help cutting forty-five degree angles, and it's like math and stuff. And Mary had been like, "You better practice, or you're gonna mess it up." So I was really scared. So I was like, "Yeah, can you just help me do this?" And I didn't make a single mistake. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't practice. No. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had a I had a bunch of things I had to do today. And uh I had two hours to do them. And I got done with the last thing I was supposed to do, and I still had fifteen minutes left. And I just stopped and thanked God for his grace. I mean because one of the things I had to do could have taken two hours. This could have. It has in the past. It didn't today. Thanks, God. Thanks. And I know that doesn't sound like really super spiritual or anything. No, it's life. It's my life. It's your life. And it's recognizing His grace in your life. That's what it's about. And, and David understood it. He he knew God's grace in his own life and he's seen God's grace over and over and over and over again. A God that was gracious unto him over and over and over again. Recognizing it for what it was. And so here he is in a moment of crisis. Is he going to default to God hates me, he's going to just do this? Or is he going to default to God's gracious and who knows? 
Maybe he'll pour out his grace. That's what you've seen before. Let's believe God for that. Let's pray. Let's weep. Let's do what we need to do. Let's intercede. And you get toward the end of it, right? They come in and say, the child is dead. Okay. That was it, right? That was it. That was it. So he got up and he went about his business. But while he was still alive, follow me, there's still hope. While he's still alive, there was still that hope, that grace. It's so big, it's so huge, and it's so outstanding. I'll do what I need to do to see that. So God does what He does. Well, that, that He's God. Okay? He's God. But the, the point of this isn't that God is God. He is God. The point of this is that we need to begin to default with Him. Begin to default in our minds with His mind. Default in our heart with His heart. Default in our spirit with His spirit to grace for the judgment. That's what we need to do. And put ourselves in that position. Then I'm going to tell you there's a more favorable there you're in a more favorable favorable position in God's grace than you'll ever be in his judgment. <coughs> Did David lose anything? By doing this? No, no. Not through his actions, he did. Maybe, maybe, maybe he confused his servants. Maybe. Maybe a few of them uh, judged him for all the emotion he was showing to that child. Maybe. I don't know. He humbled himself. Maybe someone saw that as weakness. Maybe. But in the long run, in reality, he didn't lose anything by assuming grace. He didn't lose anything by defaulting to grace. He didn't lose anything by weeping and by praying and by interceding and by laying himself on the ground to believe God for that child. He lost nothing. And in the end was the end. And he was able to get up and go back to his life. Because he had done what he was going to do. That was it. So look at Joel. Joel chapter 2 and verse 13. Alright, do you see the attitude there? I mean, memorize that if you can. If you don't think that way, read that verse enough that you just know it. (coughs) Is this Old Testament or New Testament? Old Testament, right? Yeah. It's a prophet Joel. He's letting them know. It's what you do. And what kind of God do you see there? Joel 2.13. What does it tell you? Gracious and compassionate. Gracious and compassionate. Correct. 
That's who he is. And if that's not who he is to you, if you got some mentality, oh, he was mean in the Old Testament. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. He was gracious and compassionate. You extend your lifetime three, four times. He was gracious and compassionate. Longer than your life. Double. Over and over and over and over again. Gracious and compassionate. He even tells you how to go about it. Don't rend your clothing. Rend your heart. Rend your heart. You see change here? Man, God honors that. He honors that. Joel knew that. He's trying to tell the people, he's trying to save them. Put yourself into His grace. How are you going to do that? Rend your heart. Put yourself into His grace. Don't be prideful. Don't be self-condemning. It makes me crazy when people make decisions for me about how I'm going to react. That makes me crazy. And people do it all the time. Like they're going to they're gonna save themselves the, the pain and the heartache. Well, why does the person doesn't react that way? You've already just made the decision. You're like self-judged. You self-punished. Well, maybe there wasn't any of that to start with. Stop it. Stop it. There might be just a whole boatload of grace waiting for you. I bet you a bigger chance of that than judgment. So, we're going to default to grace. We're going to end our time. We're going to look at a few verses that talk about grace. Let it sink in. Joel 2.13 is a good one. Let that one sink in. And let's start looking at some other verses. New Testament verses. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not for, from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so, so that no one can boast. All right. So you can't earn salvation, and you also can't earn grace. Or else it wouldn't be grace. So those verses, they, they tie two important concepts together. That one is our salvation. And the other is the idea of grace in our lives. And, and so behind those two things is this concept that Paul is trying to teach the Ephesian church, and that's this, that we don't receive those things because we earn them somehow. They're not wages. They're not wages. Grace is not a wage. Salvation is not a wage. In other words, we don't put in our hours and we get a paycheck. 
Right? When the Bible talks about wages, in Romans it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And there's a contrast brought in that verse in Romans on purpose. Wages of sin is death. In other words, you went to work for sin, here's your paycheck. Death. The gift of God, the gift, is eternal life. You didn't go to work for that. You, you, didn't, you didn't go and do the, the work and then you get a paycheck for it. You didn't earn it. And that's the contrast. That's the contrast. That's why Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 is so important, is that there needs to be a contrast in our heart and our mind that allows us, that frees up the grace that so freely has been given that we can receive. Let that sink in. John 1.14 Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace Jesus is full of what? Grace. Grace. He's full of grace. Full. And I know you've read that verse before. Read it now. He's full of grace. Full of it. And truth. Grace and truth. So, you're going to go to Jesus. Jesus, I messed up. Blah, blah, blah. You forgive me? What's he full of? Grace. Are you thinking chances are with Jesus? Pretty good, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's full of grace. He's full of truth, too. So, those two things go together like this. Yeah, you messed up. You're forgiven. <laughs> All right? The truth of the matter is, we are who we are. The truth of the matter is, there's things about us that need to change for our own good. The truth of the matter is, sometimes God sends people our way to help us and bring us to places of change in our life. That's the truth of the matter. But the truth of the matter also is that Jesus is full of grace. So if we will confess our sins, Jesus is faithful, Jesus is just, He will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But He's full of grace. Full of it. Full of it. There's no lack. There's no lack of grace in Jesus. Ever. Never, ever, ever. He's just full of grace. And I think it's important you recognize that that is a description of Him at that transition. At that metamorphosis point where the Word... The eternal Word, the Word that was with the Father, the Word that was in creation, the Word that has always existed and always will exist, when that Word at this moment became flesh, how are we going to describe it? He's full of grace and truth. That's important. What are we going to emphasize? Grace and truth. What are we going to make sure people understand about this, this person, Jesus? This word become flesh, and that is he's full of grace for us, for our lives. Full of grace. 
Next verse. Got a couple more. Acts 6 8. Acts 6 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Alright, Stephen was a deacon. He was also the first martyr of the church. But how was he described? Full of what? Grace. So Jesus is full of grace. And so we have a description of one of his people. An early Christian. Many of these Christ life. Identified with Jesus. Identified with as being a servant of Jesus. Identified as being a servant of the church. How is he described? Same as Jesus was described. Full of grace. Yeah. There seems to be a premium here. Get it. There seems to be a premium here about being full of grace. Jesus is full of grace. His people are full of grace. If you can't receive that, if you can't live in it, it's hard to be full of it. I mean grace. It's hard. He gives us grace. He pours out His grace. He has modeled grace. He has shown us grace. Since the very beginning, since the very creation, God has been a God of grace over His people. The vast majority of interactions that man has ever had with God have been full of grace. 99%. 99 99.9%. The default to anything, what's it going to be? 99.9%. He's full of grace. Stephen was full of grace. That's why Stephen could look at and, and, and people were stoning him and stuff. So he didn't get all mad and charge him or anything. He was full of grace. Full of grace. Jesus on the cross, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. Full of grace. Full of grace. And those were the people that were nailing him and laughing at him and and making fun of him as he suffered and died. Full of grace. Full of grace. Hebrews thirteen nine. Not to carry away by all kinds of strange teaching. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial food, which is of no benefit to those who do so. Alright. Now, Hebrew is one of those books that tries to cut through some of the malarkey. Alright? Because what it was going after was people that were trying to add stuff to the simplicity of the gospel. 
Because they come out of a complex system of worship. They come out of a complicated way of going about getting to God. And so they were starting to add things to the simple gospel. They're starting to put other requirements in. They're starting to put other ideas into it. And so through the book of Hebrews, you see that there's some simple things that they want people to know. And the book's about how the other stuff's just been taken care of and doesn't matter anymore. And so you look at this verse, and what, what does it say? Don't, don't get distracted, right? Don't get distracted. You're better off just being full of grace. And so, I want to leave you with that idea. Don't get distracted. You're better off just being full of grace. Well, yeah, but you don't know. I don't care. You're better off being full of grace. Well, what about, I don't care. You're better off being full of grace. What about this technicality? Nobody cares. Be full of grace. Well, this issue seems very important. It's not. Be full of grace. Well, you know, they really should be told. Nope. Be full of grace. Be full of grace. Be full of grace. Let the Holy Spirit do His job. I'll tell you something about the Holy Spirit. He's full of grace. Let Him do His job. Yeah. Let Jesus do His job. Let me tell you something about Jesus. He's full of grace. Let Him do His job. And let's be full of grace. We're better off. We're better off. And that's what I mean by defaulting to grace. We're just better off. Let's take a moment and respond. I want to give you an opportunity to just really ask God to, if you need to change some things, especially those of us that were Christians, like grew up Christian, sort of, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you may need to get something rewired in there somehow. A lot of years of bad, you know, kind of destructive teaching can uh, affect you. It just can. And so I want to encourage you to let God rewire you a little bit. And, and, and let Him just fill you with grace. Lord Jesus, tonight I thank you that as the Word, you're with God, you were God, all things are created through you, by you all things are held together. Thank you that all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, God Almighty. And so you became flesh, you dwelt among us, the only begotten of the Father, and you are full of grace. Full of grace. Full of grace. Your people are full of grace. I want to be full of grace. 
I want to default to grace. I want to believe you for grace. I want to live in that expectation of grace. Let's give you thanks that over and over and over again you've shown us that kind of love. Over and over and over again you've shown us that kind of forgiveness. Over and over and over again you showed us that patience. You've shown us that grace time and time again. I pray, Father, that I can live in that. And that grace would just live in me. Thanks. Thanks. You choose to make us men and women of influence. Thanks. You choose to give us opportunity to, to pray and to intercede and to see things change. You choose to partner with us as the hearts of kings are changed, nations change their course. The world itself could change its whole course. You choose to partner. Allow us to partner with you in that. Thanks. And so we pray. And we intercede. And we pour out our hearts We believe you, God. We believe you. Thanks. Thanks. I pray that you would untangle our minds. You would uncomplicate our minds. I pray a simplicity that the Word became flesh. I pray a simplicity that we're your people and we're like you. I pray a simplicity, simplicity to live in that which you have said, that which you have demonstrated, and that which you consistently pour out day in and day out over our lives, whether we recognize it or not. I want to live in your grace, God. Thanks. Fill up. Fill us up. Fill us up. I pray whatever you do, change your hearts, change your minds, do it. But God, I pray you set your people free from lies, 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 lies. And fear that's based in lies set us free to live in your truth, your grace, your love, your mercy, all that you have for us. Take a moment to say what you need to say to Him. Take a moment to receive. Receive in Him tonight. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hmm. We receive you, Jesus. Ask these things in Jesus' name. Should we say an amen? Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You no, know, me and Christ are homies.
That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know. He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community that. No, yeah, see, a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah. 